For those of you who are all here, are you all here? Good, 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 good. Good stuff. I want us to turn to a couple of places in Scripture. It's a little hot today. There we go. And we're going to do something a little bit different, different than I've probably done in a long time, but I'm going to deal with Paul's love for the church. I want to talk about it. What Paul, what I would call Paul's longing and glory. So turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we know the story of this community and the power of the gospel, this good report, this good story that came into these people's lives through the apostles. And as the apostles left and the church was established, the organized oversight of these people and their faith, we we see in the writings that there were two things that took place. One is there was an incredible transformation that took place in the life of these people that began to spread. The word of that change began to spread across the entire region. And because of this new uptick in growth and excitement and, and awesomeness and, and just change, people came in who didn't like it. That's what happens. I remember here through the years in this community, there have always been opportunities for people to make expansion and grow and, and do things. And there's always a small but very loud and boisterous people who come in on the heels of the ideas of growth and, 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 and prosperity and everything else. And they go, no, yeah. we don't want you to have fun. So like the Grinch. And we live in a day and age where being a spiritual Grinch, where being a joy Grinch is just like the thing to have. I mean, we've got merch and everything. Don't bother me, I'm angry. I mean, you know, I can see that on the t-shirt. People sort of enjoy being contrary. And I don't understand it because it's a miserable place to live. But as the old adage says, misery loves company. And I find it also interesting, I've taught through Thessalonians, both letters before, but to get the heart of what I believe that the Lord's put in my heart this week on this, let's just walk through a little bit of how Paul approaches these things. So Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and he says to them these words. Look at chapter 2, 17 through 20. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, see how he writes that, I wanted to come to you. But Satan, the enemy, he hindered us. Verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. <laughs> now Paul's occasion to write these, this infantile congregation 
And we don't know how many thousands of people he's writing to. Hundreds of people without, I mean, he's writing to the believers of Thessalonica. It's not like Grace Truth Church and Reformed Church and this church and that church. I mean, you know, the body of believers were a community, even if they had different locations. Oh my gosh, what would that look like? We can't even exist on Facebook together. But Paul writes this letter and his attitude is this. He hears first of things happening in Thessalonica that bless his soul. Bless his soul. They are, he is so overjoyed and filled with awe at the work of God in the lives of these people in his absence. You know, sort of like of a, a parent when your kids go off to stay with somebody for a day or have a play date for the first time and you're not there. And you're always wondering, am I going to get the report that little Johnny was like a really bad boy? He cut the hair off the baby dolls and drowned the pet lizard and squeezed the frog. And I mean, we had friends like that, you know. Their children would just like run amok, throw rocks through windows. They thought it would be funny to put three beta fish in the same bowl and which one survived. I mean, I'm not kidding. These are like 10-year-olds. I'm going, what is this, home alone? But it's always nice when they go off and somebody says, oh, your child was an angel. And you're like looking around, who are you talking about? You know? But it feels good. It's awesome. Paul talks to the Corinthians like that. They were running amok and doing all sorts of nonsense, and Chloe had to tell on them. Chloe, a leader in the church. Chloe, a host in the church. Chloe, a teacher in the church. Chloe, a prayer warrior in the church. Chloe, a partner in the gospel. I want you to get that in your mind. And then she gives a report after the lying elders tell otherwise. And he's like, I'm going to come down there with my stick. He literally says this. And I'm just going to beat the daylights out of you. <laughs> and I'm not saying beating the daylights out of anything is biblical. I'm just saying that was Paul's sentiment. But if I had a rubber hose, I'd, you know, that kind of thing. But he says, that's not what I'm doing. I'm going to send this. I'm going to trust. You knuckleheads, you need to do in my absence better than you do in my presence. Well, the Thessalonians were doing better without Paul there. Not because he wasn't there. They were just thriving in the gospel. So he was writing to that occasion. But more importantly, he was writing to them because some people, these contrary drug dogs or whatever you want to call them, they were coming in and they were causing problems. And they were saying, hey, y'all think y'all got it all together. You're too happy. Isn't that it? You're too joyful. You know what? You missed the resurrection. You missed the resurrection. Huh? Yeah, y'all talking about the joy of the Lord and being in heaven. Y'all missed all that. Y'all was asleep. And it messed up the faith of some. It hurt some people to hear that what they were longing for had already taken place. And then it caused fear. And then there were little pockets. Hey, you want to have a Bible study on how we missed the resurrection? Yes. I want to know what's going on. You want to watch, you want to watch the uh, camel news so we can figure out Maybe we can find the second edition. I mean, isn't that the way it is today? Remember when COVID hit? How the book of Revelation just like was everywhere? Excuse me, Revelations. I'm looking at this only one, but I'll, I'll take it. That's just so common. I mean, you know, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. People are asking me and emails are coming in through the church website and, you know, Twitter's firing up. Is this the last days? 
are we going to see, you know, whatever? And I'm going, I don't know, and nobody else does. So quit wasting your time with it. Are you doing your job as a human being in the world, loving your neighbor and working with your hands and staying peacefully, quiet, and out from under the out out off the, off the radar of the governing authority. Stay off the radar. I mean, that's that's Paul's command to the church in Rome. Stay off the radar, <laughs> and the Hebrew Christians. Nobody in the Bible has ever been commanded, called, incited, or encouraged to be something big and be known in the world. It's not the way it is. But oh my goodness, America! I mean, we have Christian excitement, don't we? And Thessalonica did too. And so Paul writes. But he writes in a way that does not detract from the beauty of what God is doing in the life of those people. Even though what's happening is really frustrating. You know how he does that? He addresses it and moves on. He says, yeah, don't worry about these people. Just ignore them. Just ignore them. Do you know why we can't ignore things that bother us? Because our, our nervous systems don't let us. You know that, right? It's neurological. Neurological things cause emotional things. And that's as much as I'll say about that. But we, we, our nervous systems can't handle it. It's the reason we feel things in our body. You know, in antiquity, they thought that the gut, the bowels, the intestines, was the heart of the soul. You know why? Because when they worshipped they felt it there. They felt it there. And then later, in, you know, by the Renaissance period, people changed the mindset. And this might not be exactly the calendar dates of the... But by the Renaissance, they were saying that the heart was the center of the soul. Why? Oh, because they had a lot of free time to read and learn and, and live and a very luxurious life. And, and, and man, they just like... They were loving and heartbreak and loving and heartbreak and the anxiety, the, the anxiety manifests there in the chest. You feel it right there in your chest. So for every emotion, there's a, there's a physical, there's a physiological expression of that emotion. So we see even in the Jewish people of antiquity that the soul was the bowels because that's where they felt their worship. It wasn't their thoughts that worshipped, it was their bodies that worshipped. And when someone else come, comes in and, and does, we don't notice it anymore because we're in our heads all the time. And so we're thinking about thinking about thinking about thoughts. And we're not paying attention to what's going on in our bodies. And I am a living poster child of what that can do to you over the last two years. It can destroy everything that you ever thought possible to be destroyed in your body. When you think you're dying because your doctor says that you probably have either cancer or a debilitating, life-changing, never-going-to-get-over-it disease, and then after surgical intervention and discovery over a nine-month period, they say, it's stress. You're going, what? No. Really? <laughs> and then the stress of that is even worse. The Thessalonians were stressed out because these people wanted to upset their happiness. Man, life is good. Well, have you heard about, you know? Isn't that the way it goes? People can't stand it when other people are joyful. 
Or they tabloid syndrome them to death. They, well, you know, well, just wait. Just wait. That's the worst thing you can do to a young person. Graduating school, going out, getting into college, getting into, well, you just wait. Life's going to catch up with you one day. You look in the mirror, you'll be ugly, old, and uh, like this. I mean, you know. No, you don't have to be. We have permission to be joyful and enjoy life, every aspect of life, as believers. We don't devoid the gospel. We don't, we don't, we don't march in a, to a drum of debauchery and license to do things that we know are wrong. But we shouldn't live in fear. We shouldn't live in fear of other people. Paul approaches this and gives just the right amount of attention. These people are doing this to you because they can't stand that you are at peace. They can't stand that you are secure. They can't stand that you're not pulling your hair out and running around wondering when the next shoe is going to drop. You are just living your life and they can't stand it. But they don't even know that, do they? The they's of the world. They're just acting out of their own nature. They're acting out of their own condition. They're acting out of their own illness. But Paul's like, hey, you know, I'm going to talk about some of these things, but I want to tell you what you're doing great. He says you're loving. The whole world, the world around you knows that you are loving. I mean, listen to chapter 1, verse, verse, starting at verse 2. Listen to this. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly. When have you ever had the attitude of being thankful for something constantly, much less all people? And Brother Trey's, you know, he's, he's, he's had a, a lot of fun with the imprecatory prayer, no, don't do it, but do it type thing. You know, I mean, it's easy, be honest with God, because you can't posture yourself in a place of holiness before him anyway. That's Christ's work, and he's already done it. So you might as well not lie. <laughs> oh, Father, I come holy and pious before you this morning. Liar. Oh, God, I wish I just had a fly flap. If I had a rubber hose, <laughs> you see? But Paul is saying constantly, remembering you before our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfast, steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know brothers, and keep in mind when you see that in the New Testament, it is a plural word for siblings. Even though it is masculine, English really messes. I had a wonderful conversation with a Spanish-speaking person this week who establishes that, like, this, the English really messes things up, brother, sister type thing. Brothers, sisters, siblings, we know, beloved, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And in verse 8, he says, well, I mean, verse uh, Goodness, six, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much suffering. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. And see, that's when it really rubs sideways, isn't it? When people can look at our lives in the world, and there is every reason to be broken and scared. I want you to hear this. There's every reason to be broken and scared and disheveled and, 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 and sh shimmering and shaking about the impending disaster. But yet there is a sense of peace and hope that floats us along. 
It upsets some. Much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example. Look at this. To all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you to Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Now, does that mean every place in the entire cosmos? No. It's an expression. Everywhere that we've been, we've heard it. So that we need not say anything. I mean, they would travel to different places. They didn't have to go in there and start talking about what was really taking place in the life of these people because these people were coming up to the apostles going, Hey, have you heard what's going on in Thessalonica? Sound normative? No. I mean, what would the good news news channel look like? That makes me sick. To my, I feel it here in my soul. <laughs> because I know what it would look like in our day. It would look like some just whitewashed nonsense of Christian culture that has no Christian in it. But that it, probably just really silly stuff. But what would a real good news news network look like? What would the news network, this just in, people were singing and having a good time in the park downtown New York. About what? Were they about to burn the place down? Um, they were just so excited to be outside. Huh. Swipe left. <laughs> Swipe left. Oh, there we go. Yeah, some dirt now. We got into the Hollywood moment. Who is divorcing who and who is hurting who and what nasty things. I mean, look at the Weather Channel. 24 hours coverage of the wind. That blows where it wishes. Talk about a, a funny thing. And I love meteorology. I think it's fascinating. But it wouldn't be good news. Nobody would tune in to good news. I don't look at the weather until there is something headed my way that's going to kill me. Or I want to go do something outside and I need to see if I need to do it or reschedule it or wear something different. That's as far as it goes. And i got an app for that. I don't even need to look at the weather. Is the weather channel even on? I don't even know if it's on anymore. Bad news sells, bad people get attention, and they're always really in the minority if you think about it. Thessalonica was a lot of believers there. But they heard about the goodness. They heard, they reported, verse 9, themselves reported concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now think about what he just said there and the turn in which he said it. The way he phrased that. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I mean, this is, a, this is an exclamation of God's work and it's a joyous occasion. But what would we do? Listen to this. Put this in 2023. What would we do? What would be the popular way of handling this in the context of today's culture? The rest of this letter would be about turning from idols. There's 13 ways to turn from idols. There's five ways you might have be having idols for dinner. There's all sorts of things. The clothes you wear probably prove you're not Christian. I mean, you look at it. It's there. It's everywhere. It's what we draw ourselves. It's what we're drawn to because we live in a state of fear. And what cast away fear, beloved? What does the Bible say cast away fear? Love cast away fear. Love cast out all fear. John says that. Love, 
So we better be defining love correctly. And you know what it's not? My bowels and my chest. Those are just the embodied responses of the things that I feel in my nervous system. That's all they are. And if we let them control us, then we are a leaf tossed to and fro. We are alone. We are isolating. And we are not living a joyful, fruitful life. And so, in chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, specifically verse 20, let me let you hear it again. No, verse 19 and 20. For what is our hope? This is a question, two questions. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord? Now stop there. Stop there. This is where, this is it. And I'm just going to say some things in the next few weeks. I'm going to get back into Timothy, I promise, and I'm going to do some more Psalms and, you know, Trey will continue in Ephesians and other places that the word takes us. But there is a sense in which I am no longer interested in any way of debating doctrine or theology. And I've been tired of it for a long, long time. It's a hobby. Just like I played chess nine hours a day when I was 15 on the weekends. I played my horns all the time, and I did magic tricks, and I ran. I don't run anymore unless something's after me, and then if I don't have a gun, I'll, you know, I might run a little ways or throw you in between us. But there is not, I mean, there are some things that we just don't do anymore, and they're like hobbies. Okay, theological studies is a hobby that I had because I enjoy invigorating conversation, but there's a thread that's always been there. It's a thread of fear. We got to get this right or else you don't know about that. Oh, you're just a dumb, weak Christian. That's the sentiment. And God help if our sisters stand up and start proclaiming something they've learned from the scripture. Okay, woman, just be quiet. That's happened. That's happened in my house. Not for me. I wouldn't be standing here. But you know, I mean, this is deplorable. It's, it's not, this is not where Paul is. But when we hear that question in today's culture, we have the frou-frou, no truth at all. And then we have this hard, heavy, I mean, like the books that we had in seminary. I mean, when you start a Ph.D. program and you're excited, you're like, this is going to be so fun. And then you get your first books and you go, what have I bit off? The Gagging of God by Don Carson. In the small print, Tom, you've seen the book. Yeah, I see him up there. He's, he's, he's getting sick. He's feeling anxious. Um, it's that thick. And the preface made me arc. I short-circuited. I wasn't in the... That's not living the Christian life. And honestly, I love that teaching. I love the interaction around the philosophy because it's just something that I enjoy. I also enjoy quantum physics. I love it. I absolutely love it. But no one else loves it, so I just look at it by myself. Every morning I read an article from a website. Every morning. And then I just move right along. Theological things are not what it's about. 
Is theology important? Yes, because theology by definition is what God... But how has God revealed himself? Here we see in this, in this scripture, this question is not answered in that way. What is our hope? What is our joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? And it is also not getting it right. It's not like, well, we got it all right. We studied real hard. Look how we live, Jesus. Look how we look, Jesus. Look how we acted, Jesus. And you know what Jesus would say if that were our defense? Get away from me, you workers of iniquity. Your good stuff and your great knowledge and your awesome attitude is garbage. It's toilet paper, used toilet paper. You're not bringing that in my house, right? I mean, if you had a dinner party and somebody showed up with used toilet paper, I think you might need some. Not that. But you just go on back to your house. We'll, we'll do this dinner over Skype or Zoom or whatever it is. No, don't want that. That's not the answer either. And the answer isn't something we've done or decisions we've made. It isn't how well we've done because, you know, in our best of days, it's not good enough. What's good enough is the righteousness of Christ. What's good enough is to know that the promises of God are infallible. What's good enough to know that his love is sufficient for us in times where we just don't see it or feel it. So Paul's answer to that question is, what is our boast? What is our crown? What is our joy? What is our hope? What are we wearing before the Lord Jesus to boast in? Is it not you? Let that sit there for a second. Is it not you? You are our glory. You are our joy, Paul says. Now remember what glory means. Imagine it like being seen in your birthday suit. Everything you are for the world to see. It means fully exposed, fully revealed. Worth looking at. Nothing to hide. No shame. You see Genesis 1 and 2? They were naked and not ashamed. The church has created a culture of shame that is so deep we can't see it. And the fuel of the lives of people in Christian culture today, and even us, is fear. And what does it breed? Everything. Resentment. Frustration, all sorts of stuff. It doesn't fulfill, it doesn't create a fulfilled life. So I want you to see this is the love that Paul had, a life of loving. And Paul wasn't feeling any good things in his gut when he wrote these letters. <laughs> Just like Jesus when he loved his people in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't feeling any good things, and he wasn't feeling loving. He wasn't feeling good. He wasn't feeling at peace, but he had peace. I think it was our last men's study, the peace that surpasses all understanding. It's like, I think, Trey, you put it this way, is that when every logical and rational reality before us says we should not love, we should not do, we should not be at peace, this should, and honestly, it's even good. We should hate this person, we should be upset, we should do this and we'll be the other way, but something deep inside of us goes, but I'm not. 
I'm at peace. That surpasses all understanding. See, that's, that's spiritual. If you ever want a hot take to pull the trolls out of the dirt, just say something about our lives being spiritual and not mention a theological thing in, in front of it. Oh, what are you doing? What are you saying? What are you trying to say? What are you not saying? What are you trying to what, what do? I don't, I don't care. I'm not talking to you. If you don't have ears to hear what I'm saying, I'm not talking to you. If you don't have eyes to see the love that I have for you, I'm not loving you. Because if you don't receive it, I mean, it's still love, but it doesn't do anything for you. So Paul loved Christ's people. So much so that he, he rejoiced in his suffering. What does he say? I pray that I may fill up what is lacking in the suffering of my body that is for your sake. Fill up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ for your sake. Paul was torn away from these Thessalonians because he's <laughs> running for his life and going to prison and messing up his own acquittal. In Philippians 2, I've got a lot of texts. I just want you to hear this. I want you to hear the word of God and the love of Paul for his people. The love of God cast away all fear. Beloved, this life let me just give you the punchline. This life as believers is about other people. And the world and the culture and the Christian culture and the church and the pastors don't get to tell you what that looks like. The word of God tells you what that looks like and how God has created you tells you what that looks like. We don't get to decide, well, you know, so-and-so wrote or in my last church or this is what I think. I mean, there is nothing biblical about the way we do church right here in the sense of its logistics. Okay? Now, it's not unbiblical in that we shouldn't be doing it. It's not biblical. There's nowhere in the Bible that says I have to stand up here. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you have to sit down there. There's nowhere in the Bible that says I have to read and have a one-way conversation that you can't interrupt. But it's just what we've decided. There's nowhere in the Scripture that even talks about us having the snack version of the Lord's love feast. But it's just where we are. At the same time, there is no reason for us to get all fearful and think, oh, no, we're not doing it right. Are we praying? Are we receiving the word? Are we engaging in opportunity for service? Are we encouraging each other on the love and good deeds? Are we rejoicing with those who rejoice? Are we weeping with those who weep? Are we seeking to do good? Are we looking to have loving kindness? Are we looking inward while also looking outward? Are we fulfilling what Paul says in Colossians 3 and Hebrews 10? In other places, to the best of our ability, absolutely not, but we're working on it. And so we're not going to pull the rug out from under ourselves just because there's some other fear, there's some other naysayer, some other contrarian or attitude, even within ourselves, that comes along and says, you're not doing it right. No, we're not doing it right. We're doing it. And we're going to live life and we're going to do it. And I'm so emphatic on that that I want to use an explicative just to show you the severity of it. Fragernacle. There you go. Dag blasted. You know, I've, oh gosh, that's actually, for some people, that is wrong. Because it's a substitute for something else. Come on. You see, let's just take a deep breath. We're not under that bondage. 
Paul writes his letter not to focus on how these people ought to think positively against the negatively. He says, just keep doing what you're doing. You're loving people so much that you're, I mean, have you ever traveled a thousand miles and heard about someone in a small town loving, being so loving that it impacted the world? No. But I've heard the trash. I've heard the trash, but not the treasure. We don't focus on the negative by, to get away from it. We don't focus on that. We love. Philippians 2, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. There's a partnership in suffering. There's a partnership in rejoicing. There's a partnership. And just as we see, even though we're not together, sometimes we can't be together. Sometimes we're sick. Sometimes we're just not able. Just can't function. I've been there. Sometimes we don't know what to do. Sometimes we're so overcome with our own lives that we just, there's no bandwidth for us to consider. And then we feel guilty. That's not of the Spirit of God. But even when Paul wasn't present with the church, his love for them stayed. Yes, you can grow out of intimacy if you're not close, if you're not touching, if you're not seeing each other. And it will affect your love, and it will affect your ministry, and it will affect your relationship. But in the spirit, you never lose. You never lose ground. What causes us to lose ground is when we're trying to apply things that the Bible has not told us to apply in ways that it told us, hasn't told us to apply. And then we call it good, right? The inferences seem to be more powerful than the obvious. What does that mean? I mean, sometimes the things that we think about coming out of what we obviously saw become the thing that we want to do rather than that which was told to us. I want you to drink this cup of water. What is water? <laughs> what is a cup? And I'm a kung fu guy, so this is right up my alley. Be the water. No, drink the water. Drink the water because you're dehydrated. Oh, I was just reflecting. It's okay. I'm going to reflect on the water as I drink it. I'm going to see if it goes to my love and to my soul or wherever it is. I'm going to feel it as it cold, you know. Paul's like, hey, my life's being poured out for you. And in the day of Christ, I'm going to stand before the Lord. And I'm going to be proud of you. I'm going to say, Lord, look at my crown. Look at my crown. Look at them. Is that selfish? No, that's not selfish at all. That's fabulous. Because you know what it does for me? It, it puts in perspective, it puts in perspective that the hunger that I have in my body for things is not as important as the hunger that I have in my soul that, are, that is already mine. The promises of God that are mine already, that, that, that cannot be taken away. Nothing, nothing can separate me from these things of God. Nothing. Not even God. For I am His and He does not change. You see that? 
The Bible says that God cannot lie. And that's a good thing. Because sometimes we tell the truth and then we lie because we can't fulfill it. It wasn't deception, it was just life. Paul says, I'll rejoice with you all. I will stand here and I will give my life that you may see joy. Romans 15. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, my work is done. And since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. See, Paul, no matter when or why he needed to contact these churches, his ultimate desire was just to hang out a little bit. I'll say that again. Paul's ultimate desire was just to hang out a little bit and let organic life take over. What is going to happen when we get together? I don't know. We might sing some songs. We might play some vinyl. We might watch a movie. We might play a game. You will lose, but we will play. Especially Trivial Pursuit. You will lose. That's okay. Someone has to. And in the midst of all of that, life happens and conversations flow out of the abundance of the heart. And Sometimes deep things are talked about and sometimes deep things are worked through through light living. We're not therapists. We're not theologians. We're not called to do that. And, we're not, and I'm not talking superficial life either. I'm just saying... What did Jesus do when he hung out for four years with those 12 men? Sit quiet, take out your paper. Write this down. No, they didn't write a thing. They didn't even have notes until they went to prison. Well, Peter didn't go to prison, but you, you know what I'm saying. I mean, John didn't write till he was exiled. Paul got Timothy and John Mark to come and bring the paper so they could knock out all these letters we read. And if it weren't for Luke, the doctor, Paul would have died in prison of starvation. Nobody cared about Paul. They didn't feed you. There weren't civil rights in the first century. You went to jail to die. And if your family and loved ones didn't come and bring you food four times a day and clothes and medicine, you died. Well, that guy's something's wrong. His head's falling off. Well, his daddy didn't show up today. Throw him out in the pile. I mean, this is horrible, but this is life. I'm going to go to Spain. Did Paul ever make it to Spain? The answer is no. That was his plan, but God never let him get there. Why? Because when they said, we don't really have a case for you, he says, well, I'm appealing to Caesar. <laughs> well, you're free to go. Nope, I want a trial. <laughs> Why? Because the Spirit of God put it in Paul's heart to stay in prison three and a half years until he could get before Caesar so that he could tell Caesar about what Jesus Christ, the God of heaven and the human flesh, had been killed and then raised to life and then came to meet him on the road to Damascus and changed his outlook on everything. And that though you, Caesar, think you're Lord, you're not. The real Lord is Jesus, of whom I am the messenger. I mean, was that a knuckleheaded move or not? I don't know anybody on the pastoral counseling desk that would say that Paul wasn't an idiot. But why did he do that? Because he loved God's people. He loved God's people. He did that because God drove him and pushed him and pulled him for his love because of the love of, his, of the people. 
And that's not our calling to be like Paul. It's not our, my calling is to be me. And your calling is to be who you are. Right now, where you are in life is where God has called you to be. Don't believe me? Romans 12. Renew your mind. Meditate on these things. Understand then when you do these things, when you meditate on the Word of God, which is what we're doing today through the life of Paul with pretexts that speak very loudly to us. We're renewing our mind on the reality of the love of God that casts away all fear. Paul didn't make it to Spain, and he never made it back to Rome as a minister. Oh, my gosh. And yet, I rejoice all the more in my sufferings, is what he says, because in my weakness, he is strong. What is wrong with you, Paul? I just love you so much. I do anything. I know where the love songs come from. I'd climb the highest mountain, I'd swim the deepest sea, that garbage. Paul did. But Jesus Christ climbed the highest place and fell from the highest place. From glory to earth, from the ground to the cross, to the cross to the grave. Huh? There's a song about that too, isn't there? And from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Woohoo! Never get away from songs. Romans 1. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness. And this isn't gone with the wind. Whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will that I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I mean, if you were Paul and you were in prison, wouldn't the first thing you want to do is just get out for a minute? Man, I'm out for a minute. i gotta, got to at least a staycay, you know? i got to stay here and vacation a little bit. Let me just get a little bit of time for myself. That's what we look for every single day. And depending on our nervous system... Depending on our fear level, it may or may not be enough. No, but Paul got out of prison so he could run to God's people and do that which God had equipped him to do. And until then, he just labored over them. Philippians 1, verse 7 it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. Both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ. Now see, Paul's putting God on the table here, isn't he? God is my witness. How do we know you're telling the truth? God is my witness. I mean... No, I did not do that crime. Well, who's your witness? God. Well, I guess it's over then. Case dismissed. I mean, that's bold. That's a bold swear. And Paul only did it. How about two things? He took that bold swear. God is my witness that Christ called me. No man did. 
So you can say that I'm not a messenger of God as an apostle, but I know what Christ did and he called me. And I'm the outlier and the exception. And then the only other time is for the love of God's people. He does not lie. And that's the same place we see in Philippians, you know. For I can endure all things in Christ who strengthens me. He's talking about not taking their money. <laughs> no, 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 no. You keep it. You've done more than enough. You are enough for me. Keep it. 2 Corinthians 11. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Parents, we know what that's like. No matter what stage you're in as a parent, you know what it's like to have anxiety for your kids. And we all deal with anxiety differently. And even though we think sometimes we can turn it off or we can just like do something else, the internal stress of that is always there. And Paul had that for God's people. He asked the question, who is weak? Who's weak? Am I not weak? It's okay to not be okay. Being a Christian and being a pastor and being a leader and being a parent and being a, being a boss is not about being okay. It's about being still when you're not okay. Who's weak, Paul asked. Am I not weak? Who's made to fall? And, am I, and, and, and I am not indignant? And this is honesty. This is authenticity. Two Sundays ago. Three Sundays ago. Living an authentic life is being honest. Being open. That's integrity. Speaking the truth in love is calculated in that context. I can trust you. But you know what you can't trust? The American church culture. You can't trust it because love doesn't cast away fear. The posturing of love that's not biblical causes more of it. I just love you to death. I want to talk to you about something, okay? Until March of this year, every time someone called me or messaged me about having a meeting without telling me what was going on, hey, you want to get together on this or you want to get together about that, I became fearful. It's a stress response. Because early in the days of ministry when I was just excited about life and sacrificing every good thing for nonsense that I thought was biblical, Trusting people who have brought me into these circles with my family. And doing everything that I could to just enjoy loving others and leading them to the understanding of this hope and freedom and authenticity that comes from the gospel. And then you get that, hey, hey, man, what you up to today? I'm just doing this. I know it's your day off, but hey, let's come by the church and let's have a conversation. And you walk in there and everybody's in death robes. 
The executioner's got a mask on. What? We find to do a play? This one act? This improv? No, you sit right there in the anxious seat, buddy. We heard from somebody who heard, they heard from somebody heard. That, fill in the blank, what say ye? What? You know, that kind of stuff will scare you to death. Or, well, look at here, somebody finally decided to get spiritual and come back to church after six weeks. You ever been there? You ever miss church so much that you feel like you can't come back because there is the one person? 900 people ain't going to look at you at all, but that one person, they're going to be 500 feet away, and they're gonna, you're going to walk in the back door, and they're going to go, Good to see you. She finally showed back up, Paul. You see? And then that causes, you're like, I don't want to go back in there. I don't want to drive by the building. Phone rings. They're supposed to give you a million dollars they just inherited. Ghost. Well, I try to give them the money, but... Because you're mean, man. You're always being ugly. It's what we do. It's what the church has become. It's not like Paul. I'm a mess. You're a mess. We're all a mess. Hallelujah. Love the Lord Jesus. What can I do for you? I can't do that because my leg got cut off. But what else? First Thessalonians. If you move back up to like chapter, uh, verse 7, 7 and 8, what does it say there? I just read it. We came to you in his example. We were gentle. No, that's chapter 2. Yeah. Chapter 2, verse 7. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I mean, when's the last time you felt like that amongst God's people? Like a nursing child being taken care of by your mother. Something I'll never know except through as, a, as an observer. That's who we are. That's who we should be. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Galatians 4.19. 1 Corinthians 16, that crazy church. Let all that you do be done in love. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Ephesians 3 so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Philemon, Paul writes, And I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full, of assur full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And I've got too much. I've got like 15 or 20 more passages I want to read. There's some things we've learned as a church in the last almost 12 years. And I had some of these things written down. And then 
It got to be absurd. We've learned that in the beginning days, there's always going to be some excitement, right? There's always going to be some excitement about something. That excitement wanes. There's always going to be people that come in and, and disrupt love. There's always going to be people that leave that did love and that we love. But we're learning that God has established the purposes for himself, for us, and for our joy. So we are not on the hook to get all this right. But we are on the hook to love. And as Paul would tell the Thessalonians, you are so loving that the world is talking about you. The good news news. But there's something I need you to do, Thessalonians. I need you to listen very carefully. With all the love of Christ I have for you, I need you to love more. <laughs> That's the teaching. And in doing so, and apprehending with all the saints the love of God, fear is cast away. That means it doesn't take home. It doesn't move in. It's there. It comes by to visit. It's back and forth. It might be in the same hour or the same day or the same week. It may come at the same time every few days. It may come under the same circumstances. Stress, fear, anxiety, worry, doubt. But love is bigger. And beloved, there's one thing that we've learned to do as a church is love, but there's one thing that we have not learned to do at all, and that's love. And so we've got to continue to learn to do it. We've got to learn to love ourselves in Christ. We've got to learn to love our spouses and children and neighbors. We've got to learn to love each other as we are equipped. Not as the world tells us. Not as the church culture tells us. But as the word tells us. Not just in word. Yes, in word. But not just in word. But also in deed. In prayer. In presence. Be present. That was every time Paul talked, right? I just want to be there. I want to be with you. I want to be close. I want to know you. I want to see your face. I want to know you're okay. I want to experience what you're... I want to hear the stories about how your kids are doing. Whatever it was that Paul... Beloved, I want to love you like that. I want you to love each other like that. As God has equipped you. Because God has loved us like that. His Son is our righteousness. Jesus didn't come to provide an opportunity for us to get things right and to choose the right way. Jesus is the right way. And He's pulled us into Himself because the Father has given us to Him. This is, this is what it means to have the good story. And so we're to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. What does that mean? It's not a command to fear and tremble. It's the statement of fact that we're going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, being uncertain of all things. But what? What does Paul say? Trusting in him who is faithful. <laughs> That's the command we trust. That's the, the working there. That's the ongoing action. Trusting in him who is faithful. 
Christ is faithful. He gave himself. He gave his body. He died. He came that we may have life and have it abundant. Beloved, the church needs to live an abundant life right now by faith in the love of God. And that's going to change for you and for me. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the word as richly as it has been for me. I pray that it has been rich for all of us. Lord, I'd be a fool to think that these things are just going to transform overnight. But Father, we do thank you for these small reprieves. I thank you for the uneasiness that comes in my own heart and my own body when I think about this stuff and how it makes me uncomfortable to contemplate my fears and my love and getting it right and trusting and resting in the one who is right. Because, Father, I know that you're with us. I know that you're with us. So, Lord, help us to not exempt the spiritual side of our being and to become so practical that we forget to live. And at the same time, don't, don't let us wallow in the poetry of our minds without standing up and getting some things done. Keep us in check, Father, with our relationships with each other. Help us to communicate openly and lovingly and state the truth and speak our needs, speak our fears, speak our love. For as we've had this time today, we see your love, we know your love, we are reminded of your love. And Father, let us take together this table to remember it. In Jesus' name, amen.